Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about the Bible. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Once more, I am joined by Dr. Shazer, who is the professor of Hebrew Bible at Israel Bible Center. And we are here to talk more about his course, Women and Gender in the Bible. We've been focusing primarily on the perspective of women from the Hebrew Bible, but now we're going to take this into the New Testament, especially with Eve and how Paul makes reference to her in a couple of his letters. How do we understand this? Because honestly, Paul's comments seem to go against what Dr. Shazer was saying the Hebrew view of Eve was. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray. Do you remember two weeks ago when Dr. Shazer talked about Eve as the first Torah scholar? Well, if the rabbis in general are aware of building a fence around the Torah, then what is Paul doing by making reference to Eve in the way she was deceived? Right. Yeah. So in 2 Corinthians, there's a there's a bit about, you know, Eve was deceived and Paul's worried that just as Eve was deceived by the cunning of the snake, that their that their devotion to, to Christ or to Jesus will somehow fall away. They'll be deceived into certain things. So that's really all that Paul says there. Okay. This is another thing where it's best not to extrapolate past the data on the page. And who's the focus of that line? It's not Eve and how bad she is for being a woman. It's the church at Corinth who are the right, the ones that need to be chastised. So Eve gets deceived by the snake. Fine, that's what the text says. Eve even says explicitly, the, sn- the snake deceived me, right? right fine. But, but Paul never goes on to say, oh, it's because of her gender that, she's, that she messed up. And every woman in Corinth now needs to be, whatever, put in a room. You know, I, the, the point is, that's not the thread. Paul's focus is, I'm going to give you an example of someone being deceived. And, and actually, it's an understandable deception. We could probably understand it. And Paul's just saying, I don't want that to happen to you. That's all. That's all. It's not an anti-female passage, despite the fact that later thinkers in the Christian tradition, like Tertullian, for example, will take that text and say things like, you know, women are awful. Right, like, but the point is, is that the words on the page don't warrant that conclusion. the The other classic one is in First Timothy chapter two, where the text says, "Remember, I don't, I, I don't allow a woman to teach a man or have authority over a man, uh, because." And the rationale here is that because Eve was deceived, not not Adam. And Eve became a transgressor. Okay, wow. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that text. And I'll just say a couple things, and I'll try to do it clearly and briefly. First of all, 
the the classical first century understanding of what happened in Eden, who got deceived, who sinned. Fundamentally, it's Adam. We see this from Paul himself. So the traditional Jewish view of the period, if you read through the literature in the Second Temple and in the rabbis, and even in Paul himself, is that Adam is at fault, not Eve. So if you read Romans chapter 5, verse 12, for example, Paul says explicitly that sin comes into the world through one man, that's Adam. And so that really is the fundamental understanding. So when we look at 1 Timothy, it's sort of anomalous, the idea that Eve would be blamed here. Usually it's Adam. So that's step one. Step two, there's all sorts of reasons why 1 Timothy might say this. One, here's our problem. Elsewhere in Paul's epistles, he is, again, not unlike Genesis, bending over backwards to show equality between men and women in the church. I've got a whole hour-plus-long lecture on all the wonderful pro-female texts we find in Paul. Paul calls women co-laborers with him in the gospel. That means they're apostles. Apostles go out and labor in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus. Paul calls Phoebe like an, an overseer and says that he, de- he, he actually owes her his life, that she's been a benefactor to him, meaning she's got some sort of level of authority over him. That's an amazing statement. You know, Priscilla and Aquila, Paul talks about, and Priscilla gets top billing over her husband Aquila. And we see in the book of Acts, for example, in Acts 18, they're in the synagogue together, and there's this wonderful Torah scholar named Apollos who's a believer in Jesus, and it says the guy is a genius when it comes to Scripture, and he's fervent in the Spirit and all that. And then, but he only knows about the baptism of, of John the Baptist. And so it says that Priscilla and Aquila take him aside and explain to him uh, theology and the, and the words of God more accurately. Priscilla is teaching this amazing Torah scholar man, Apollos. Okay, so that is the rest of Paul, the rest of the New Testament in general is sort of like, it's really weird to say, I don't want a woman teaching a man. We have instances of women teaching men throughout the scriptures. So why do this? In in my view, I think that there's a couple different ways to approach this. There is an ancient Jewish interpretational method, and it's called barishonah. Barishonah is a rabbinic term. It means in the beginning, okay? So 1 Timothy says of the church in Ephesus, you know, I don't, I don't want women teaching men. Now, it, it's tempting to say, oh, that's just in that particular church. That's just, just in Ephesus that that's the case. The problem is, is that the rationale is, is like a woman problem, as it were. Like, women shouldn't teach men because look at, Adam and Eve and, and what happened in, in the garden. So, look, here's my issue. I, I read through the Tanakh. I read through the Old Testament. I read through all the material in the New Testament, and then I finally get towards the end, and I reach 1 Timothy. And so my, my knee-jerk reaction is to say something like, yes, that may have been the case for this, for this situation, but in the beginning— that wasn't, that is before this, that's not the case. And that's just very clear, right? Historically before this, women teach men. 
All right? So that's what's called Barishona. The rabbis would say, yes, I know that this verse says this in the Bible, but Barishona, in the beginning, it wasn't the case. And they'll take the other verse, okay? Now, there's someone who does this in the Gospels. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus says, particularly talking about Genesis, uh, it's about divorce. Oh, why, why did Moses allow us to get divorced? This is Matthew chapter 19. And, and Jesus says, yeah, you know, Moses allowed you to, to write a certificate of divorce according to Deuteronomy 21, right, Cindy? I think it's 21. Honestly, I had to look that up because I wasn't positive off the top of my head, but it is Deuteronomy chapter 24. And the issue of divorce in the Bible happens to be a topic of one of IBC's roundtable talks. We did this a little while back. If you're a subscriber to IBC courses, you also have free access to those talks. So if you're curious and you want to follow that conversation, I'll add a link in the show notes. Anyway, back to Dr. Shazer. He was saying something about Jesus in Matthew 19, referring back to Moses. And so Moses allows the writing of a divorce. Why, says Jesus? Because of the hardness of your hearts. But in the beginning, it was not so. That's a classic Jewish move. That's barishona. And what does Jesus cite? In uh, Genesis, you know, a, a, a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And Jesus says, you know, what, what God has put together, barishona, in the beginning, you know, shouldn't be separated. Okay, so there's barishona. So my reaction to First Timothy would be to say something to the effect of barishona. And, and if Jesus does this, that is Jesus pits two texts together. All right, so what, what can I do? I've got one text in 1 Timothy, one sentence that says X, but I've got a mountain of material that says Y before it, Barishona. I have to go Barishona because it's, it's, it's not, it isn't part of the main thread of scripture, all right? I'm not trying to degrade this text. It's in our scriptures. We need to take it seriously. I'm not saying, any, I, I'm not even saying throw it out. I would never say that. Keep it there. But we need to interpret these texts in light of the rest of the text, just like Jesus does. So this is, if, it, if, it's Jesus, if, if Jesus makes the move, it's a valid move for us to make. And it, and it sorts out this issue. One more thing about this. Jesus says, Moses gave the command. I mean, God gave the command through Moses. Okay, now. Um, but why? Because of the hardness of heart. So go back to the beginning of 1 Timothy, the first chapter. Very first thing that the text says. I'm writing to you, Timothy, why? Honestly, to fix a problem of hardness of heart for this group. So that is, this, is, this could be a kind of Deuteronomistic Pauline move to say, I'm going to give you this command here, but it's, it's in order to combat your hardness of heart, but barishona, in the beginning, it was not so. And, and so we've got a decision to make, you know? Do, do we let this one verse become the rudder of our entire gender dynamic ship? Do we allow that to happen? Or do we take this maturely and in context and say, well, um, no, I don't, I don't think actually it's a great move to let one sentence dictate my entire... You know, there, there are Christian churches who say things like, we're a First Timothy church. I, I just want to say, right. what are you talking about? <laughs> right? Are you only reading First Timothy then? Is that it? You know? Uh, okay, so so I'm a, I'm an Acts 18 guy. 
I, I think women should teach all of pastors in church situations. They should interrupt them mid-sentence, and women should get up and teach them. That's what happens in Acts 18. I'm a, I'm a Judges chapter 4 guy. I think that, right. that women should be judges over the entire church, and, and, and they should decide disputes and teach men in different legal disputes. I also yep. think they should be military leaders and uh, you know mothers over the entire church, and we should revere them, okay, as Deborah is revered in Judges. The point is, that's a ridiculous thing to say. And um, I just think that, uh, again, a mature approach to Scripture has to take all of Scripture into account. If we let First Timothy a certain reading of it, by the way, because as I've tried to show, you can read 1 Timothy and, and, and loosen that tension that we think is there, okay? You can read it and it can sit there comfortably in our scriptural tradition, all right? You can do that. It just takes a little thinking, okay? But look, let's say I take that one sentence and I say, I'm a 1 Timothy person. I'm only taking that one sentence. I don't think women get to do any, any teaching. All right. So what am I doing? I'm actually silencing the rest of God's word, so if these texts are on par, okay, if Priscilla can teach Apollos and 1 Timothy says women shouldn't teach, okay, and these are, on, these are on par texts, then I'm choosing one text over the other and I'm silencing God. It, it's what I, I tell my classes. It's like stepping on God's larynx, okay? It, it, it's silencing God. Do we want to do that? Do we want to dismiss all the stuff before 1 Timothy in favor of that one sentence, I don't know that that's a very pious move. So that would just be my take on 1 Timothy. There are ways to read it and to retain it and to respect it and to deem it authoritative, all things that I want to do. And there are ways to ensure that women in the church do not get, you know, cast aside when it comes to the functionality and the life of the people of God. Well, thank you for stating it so clearly and wonderfully. It is something that I've heard a lot of female scholars say, and then the men roll their eyes and the church pastors refuse to listen and all those things. But it just, again, just going back to it, it you bring up these things that are so important for us to be thinking about in terms of what are we ignoring in order to hold so tightly onto a belief. And then what happens is we take that belief, like the first Timothy thing, and reinterpret backwards, or we we use that as a frame, and suddenly all these other characters are left out of the frame, and we don't even let them speak. So I was going to bring up, and I'm glad that you already touched on it a little bit, because when people do talk about gender and women and Bible and church, they often do jump directly to Paul's writings. I find it really interesting that when people do talk about gender and women and the Bible and in church, they often do jump directly to Paul's writings, but not necessarily all of Paul's writings, like all the times he mentions the women who are working alongside of him. And Dr. Shazer discusses those women in a lot more detail in his course. But even before Paul's writings, we do have the Gospels. I'd like to look at the Gospels because another thing when it comes to women and gender in the Bible is people will look at and say, 
well, Jesus is male and all of his disciples are male. And so therefore, right, there has to be something about male leadership. And it, that's another instance, I think, of, of choosing to read with blinders on. Because if we read the Gospels a little more fairly and allow all the characters to speak, we would find a lot of women who are also, dare I say, disciples of Jesus. Could we talk about that maybe a little bit? And in Luke 8, we actually get a list of disciples or women who are following Indeed. Jesus. Sure. Yeah. So, so, so Luke chapter 8, right at the beginning, it says that there's this, there's this list of women that are, are with Jesus and his disciples and along with them, this group of women. So yeah, they're following Jesus. They're students of Jesus just as much as the 12 male disciples are. And, and not only so, so Mary Magdalene is included in that. Uh, a woman named Susanna is included that, in that. Several other women. And they are essentially bankrolling the movement. So it's their finances that are funding, you know, because Jesus is an itinerant preacher, essentially, an itinerant teacher. And so probably doesn't have property of his own to speak of, and his disciples have left their jobs and their homes to follow him. So how are you eating? How are you lodging? How, you know, what are you, how are you, you know, keeping afloat? Well, it says that the women do this. What's really important about that is not only that they're disciples right alongside Jesus, but they've got their own independent finances. They've got their own money in the ancient world. We sometimes think of, again, this patriarchal society in which women, you know, are, you know, chained to the dishwasher and, and can't go out to, right. to make money for themselves. Utterly untrue. You know, a, cl a classic text, and I'll get back to the New Testament in a second, but Proverbs chapter 31 is the, yes. is the Eshet, Eshet Chayil in Hebrew, the, yeah, the woman of valor. Well, read through that really closely. And, and she is working. It says her arms are strong, right, working in the field. She considers a field and buys it, it says. Buys it with what? Well, it says with what? She makes wares. She makes textiles. She puts her hand to the distaff and never turns her lamp off. So she's a hard worker, and she's making her own money and selling her own goods within a familial system. It says that the teaching of wisdom and kindness is on her lips, and her husband's heart trusts in her. Trust in what? Trust in that teaching. So that's another female teaching a male within the supposed patriarchal familial system, we've got a super autonomous woman in, in Proverbs 31. The same is true of these women in Luke chapter 8. They're autonomous. They are, they are you know, self-made, if you want, okay? So that's, that's fantastic. And in fact, speaking of disciples, the, the, the woman Tabitha in Acts chapter 9 is called a disciple in the Greek. So it's the same word as the male disciples are called. She's called that as well. We get Junia, you mentioned Romans 16, we get Junia called an apostle, an apostolos, a sent out one. And we know for a fact that there are other female sent out ones because Paul says, again, like in, in Philippians chapter 3, chapter 3 slash 4, mentions women by name saying that they've gone out with him and spread the good news of the gospel. So 100% without even question, the New Testament text says that there are female apostles. So the, the original question was the 12 male disciples, right? So, so let me just talk about that really quick. So we see that women are following Jesus right alongside these disciples, but still the question 
is hanging, the, you know, why are there 12 male disciples? One of the traditional answers is, see, this goes to show that men should be leaders in the church. Several things wrong with that. The first being that I'm not so sure we want to model ourselves after the 12 male disciples. <laughs> um, just read the end of Mark or Matthew. Yeah. What happens with these disciples? They abandon Jesus. The main disciple, Peter, denies Jesus three times in the courtyard before his death. Constantly, the disciples are getting things wrong that, interestingly, women are getting right. If you remember, Jesus says to the disciples at one point, beware of the yeast of the scribes and the Pharisees. The male disciples have no clue what's going on. What does he mean? Does he mean, is he talking about the bread miracle that he did with the 5,000, you know, or the 4,000 back then? They don't understand. And, and he, Jesus sort of face palms and says, are you serious? <laughs> you, you still don't understand what's going on? What's really interesting about that is, is that the, the next incident regarding bread is when the woman, the Gentile woman, no less, called a Canaanite in Matthew 15 and a Syrophoenician in Mark 7, has a discussion with Jesus about bread, about the dogs eating the crumbs from underneath the master's table. And Jesus says, aha, wonderfully noted, your faith has saved your daughter. <laughs> so who gets it? A Gentile woman gets the bread stuff and the Jewish males do not. An another example is the woman at Bethany. Remember the, the woman with the, with the expensive ointment who, who breaks it and anoints Jesus and the disciples are incredulous. They say, you know, you could have sold that and, and given it to the poor and get this woman out of here. And Jesus doesn't say, you know what, you're right, guys. No. Once again, a woman has the inside track. She's doing this to anoint my body for burial. And every time that this story is told to people in, in further generations, this woman will be remembered for what she's done. By the way, there's no feast of this woman in any Christian tradition, by the way. I recommend that Christians start doing this. So like on the Wednesday before Good Friday, for example, have a dinner for this woman. Read this text. Let's do what Jesus wanted to do and remember this woman for what she did for Jesus before his death. Ah, right? it's brilliant. I love it. Yeah. Great idea. Yeah. So anyway, really quickly, last thing to say about the male disciples. Why are they all men? Because they recapitulate the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob, according to Genesis, has 12 sons who are the namesakes of every Israelite tribe, uh, like, you know, Naphtali, Zebulun, Issachar, all of these, these men. So Jesus is trying to say, okay, let's kind of constitute Israel around myself. And you 12 are going to be kind of the basis for the gospel going to the rest of Israel and then ultimately to the whole world. So Jesus is making a 12 tribes of Israel move here, and hence they need to be men because they're men in Genesis. In fact, Jesus makes this explicit in Matthew chapter 19 when he says, in the world to come, right, when, when people are raised from the dead and God has brought a new heavens and a new earth, that you will sit, the 12 of you will sit on thrones around me judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we know for a fact that these men are calcs equated to these other men in Genesis who represent the 12 tribes. That's why the wrong answer is that they're men and there's something intrinsically right about male leadership. We know that's not true because, again, it ends very badly. The women do the right thing in the Gospels, and oftentimes these 12 men are the ones who screw up. 
All right. So that's why. And that's the only reason why it is not making some sort of meta, you know, claim about how only men should be leading. Well, thank you so much. And thank you again. I've said it before, but thank you for your course and for actually pulling it from Genesis all the way through the entirety of scripture, instead of just picking and choosing texts, there's something so beneficial and so necessary for us to be looking at the entirety of what the biblical uh, witness is for us. And you do it beautifully in your course and in a short amount of time. And yet you give so many like wonderful illustrations for people. And so anyway, I personally am very grateful that you have this course with IBC. So thank you for your scholarship and work there. Thank you, Cindy. Yeah, it's, it's my absolute pleasure. And there's much more to be said about women in the Bible than even I cover. So hopefully my, my hope would be that, that this is a, a diving board for students, that this is a starting point, not an ending point, because there are female figures that I don't even bring up in the class. But I, I, I'm confident that if students take the class, that this will provide a really strong foundation for understanding women and gender in the Bible, and hopefully, you know, help to orient our worldview around gender dynamics, how the ancient Israelites would have understood gender and how Jesus would as well. And hopefully we can transfer that in our own discourse and our own interaction as men and women, you know, today. I mean, that, that would be the ultimate goal, right? To take this material as precedent and to do our best to carry on the egalitarian pro-female view that we see in Israel's scriptures. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking about this and we'll have to do it again soon. <laughs> Thanks, Cindy. Appreciate it. I am so not ready for this conversation to end. Alas, there are more fascinating conversations we have to have. But as Dr. Ellie says, The good news is that so much of this insights is collected in one place at this resource that we call the Israel Bible Center, where the Bible goes from black and white, even from color, into curved HD or something. Thank you for joining me on the Israel Bible Podcast. You can sign up for Dr. Shazer's course or any of the other great courses we have with a small monthly subscription using the link in the show notes. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds that you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. 